Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Well, every now and then I'll just get an email that'll make my, can I say it makes my hair curl? Or that's a colloquialism that went out with the days of uh, tools that straighten your hair and keratin. But every now and then I'll just get one of these emails that makes me think people have lost their minds and they expect me to take them seriously. It's very tough to do that. But I want to talk a little bit about this race, this primary race that's taking place on the Republican side of the aisle. And we're looking at what they're calling the new face of Republicans. Now, when I say that, let me emphasize the fact that the people saying that is the mainstream press, and they always have an agenda. So I'm not really buying it, but it's interesting that the new face of Republicans that may very well pose a big threat to Donald Trump, who's far in the lead right now in this Republican primary, is the face of Vivek Ramaswamy. And when you think about it, it's not just Vivek Ramaswamy, it's a lot of these young, charismatic, new-to-the-party Republicans that seem to be making a lot of inroads now, this guy is uh, 37 years old, barely makes the cutoff to run for the presidency. He calls himself the anti-woke crusader. So, of course, the press immediately has to ask every other candidate what they think of him. Because if they can get them all to fight, they enjoy that very much. Because when you have all of the primary candidates moaning and, and, and just taking pot shots at each other, it takes the focus away from the leader of the pack, one Donald Trump. Although I'm not sure they really want the focus taken away from Donald Trump because he does get clicks and he does get a lot of attention. And right now he's got so much of the oxygen that nobody's even paying attention anymore to Governor DeSantis. I, I, I mean... I'm only reporting this part of the news. My analysis is that Governor DeSantis should never have run. This was not his election cycle, but he chose to do it. He was listening to all of those voices in his ear that got super excited because they thought he would be the face of the new Republicans. And now he's getting competition from the most unlikely places. He's got competition from this Tech's uh, executive, this anti-woke crusader in the form of Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, when he launched his presidency in February, he's a multimillionaire. He 
made a ton of money uh, working at a hedge fund, and then he was a biotech entrepreneur, never served in government, was brand new to politics, but he could hear the underpinnings, much in the same way that one Donald J. Trump heard that back in 2014, 15, and then in 2016, that silent majority that really was tired of being marginalized and made fun of by the establishment Republicans. He's been all over the states where these primaries are going to be taking place, this Vivek Ramaswamy. He said that he's going to do things differently. He is now standing, as far as I can see, if you look at the 538 polling aggregate, he is still in third place. But Ron DeSantis, who's in second place, is still far behind President Donald Trump. So the governor, who's got name recognition, tons of money, lots of big donors, is battling against this 37-year-old businessman. I don't know. All I can tell you is that nobody thought there was going to be this close a race at any point. They've been calling, or at least the media has been calling, for a two-man primary. They wanted this to be between Donald Trump, who is the person they hate the most, and Ron, Ron DeSantis, the person they hate second the most, because they knew this would be very exciting for them to report on. Very similar in their views, very similar in their styles, although people like to say that Ron DeSantis is kind of a softer, gentler version, nonsense. So we're looking at this new rising of both Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. All of a sudden, there's a little movement in all of those campaigns. You can forget Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson. You know, they're just never going to make it. But it's interesting to watch Nikki Haley, who was the first declared candidate after Trump, and Vivek Ramaswamy, who was the next one. And then Ron DeSantis finally announced. So I look at this and I say, wow. If guys like Vivek Ramaswamy could ever get people to hear them, they're the real threat, not just to Donald Trump, but to the Republican establishment. This is a guy who is not only articulate, but clever. And that's different. You know, it's one thing to be able to deliver your message. I think Tim Scott is articulate. I think he has a nice manner I think he's kind of comforting for a lot of establishment Republicans, much in the same way that other conservative black men are comforting to them because they sort of make it obvious that it isn't race that determines who we support, it's ideas. So they love a guy like a Tim Scott. They love a guy like Byron Donalds. I do too. So I'm watching things starting to get a little more heated now. But the problem is, what are they all really angling for? Because that's, that's my job, is analyzing these numbers. I can tell you who's in first place, second place, third place, fourth place, but that's not really why I get on the air every day. What I want to tell you is what that means. 
And what it means is now you're seeing the angling to be the vice presidential candidate behind Donald Trump. Or I guess in some of their minds, it still might be behind Ron DeSantis, although I think that pipe dream has pretty much blown up in everybody's face. But you look at somebody like Vivek Ramaswamy, you look at someone like Tim Scott, and you even look at someone like Nikki Haley, and what you see are very strong potential VP candidates. Useful on the trail, they've already proven that they can not only raise money, but they can do it in interesting, different ways. Ramaswamy has people raising money for him, and then he gives them a percentage of the money, which is essentially what all candidates do, only they only pay these high-powered you know, consultants from D.C. and Virginia. Vivek said, well, you be my consultant. You donate money to me, and you get your friend to donate money to me, and I'll let you have 10% of the money that your friend donates. And that's typical entrepreneur thinking, out-of-the-box thinking. Not to mention he's got enough money in the bank that he can put up quite a good fight if that's what he wants to do. So I listened to a couple of his speeches. Some of them, I listened to the Turning Point Action Conference that just took place. And what a great speaker. Not exactly presidential, but definitely vice presidential. Tim Scott, not exactly presidential yet, but definitely vice presidential. And they bring, dare I say it, well, it's the era of diversity and equity and inclusion. They bring a little, uh, you know, a little color to any ticket that Donald Trump might actually be considering, which Mike Pence didn't do. Mike Pence was bringing reason and calmness. Well, now there's no illusion or pretense on Donald Trump's part that he's going to have a reasonable or a calm or a quiet campaign or a quiet four-year term. Actually, it's the opposite. What he's promising and what people like me are hoping for, praying for actually, is that he's going to go to Washington for a second tour of duty. And that's basically what I would call being president of the United States in this era. And he's going to turn the money changers' tables upside down. Now, I make that analogy to what Christ did when he walked into the temple at Jerusalem. Not because I think there's anything Christ-like about Donald Trump, because there isn't. However, it's that unerring ability to spot the phony, the fake, the fraud, and confront them that he possesses, which really appeals to people like me, because we're just sick and tired of being had by politicians who really could care less about what's best for us. They just want to stay in power. They just want to keep the good old boys club, the good old boys club. Doesn't matter what color you are really to them anymore. That's been kind of hijacked. But what does matter is that you are paying attention to them and you're going to keep voting for them and keep them in office. So I think these new emerging candidates are all angling for future positions. Because I think the handwriting is on the wall, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. The Democrat Party is not happy with Joe Biden. And certainly the power brokers are not happy with the Biden-Harris presidency. The only reason 
they haven't tossed Joe Biden completely overboard without, by the way, a life raft or even one of those rings to keep him afloat. The only reason is they keep looking at Kamala Harris, the VP, and thinking, oh my God, it could actually be worse. I mean, we could actually have a vice president who is a blithering idiot. Can't string together multiple coherent statements, never shows up where she's supposed to be. You know, we're, we're having border issues. Oh, really? Well, isn't she the borders are? Immigration is still a big problem. Well, wasn't she supposed to fix that? So it's got to be frightening to be a Democrat consultant or strategist right now and looking at this guy who they now have to make shorter staircases for, give him note cards and big block letter prints because his age is definitely not sitting well on him. And they got nowhere to turn. You know, they look at Gavin Newsom and they look at these really weak candidates that they think are lined up. Pete Buttigieg, you know, come on, guys. Are you going to compare a Gavin Newsom or a Pete Buttigieg to a Nikki Haley or a Vivek Ramaswamy or a Tim Scott? You really can't. They're not in the same league. And Gavin Newsom, nobody knows who he is outside of California, much like nobody really knows who most of these governors are outside of their home states. Maybe Ron DeSantis made himself a big name with his culture wars, but he didn't make himself a, a positive big name with that. And I can tell you, Gavin Newsom is not popular anywhere outside of California. Maybe he's popular in New York, but that's about it. Can't win an election yet, although they're trying to make it so there's no electoral college. But still, to this day, you cannot win an election if all you carry are the big blue cities. It's not enough. It's just not enough. It's close, but it's not enough yet. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Republican Party is bringing up this farm team They've got a future all laid out in front of them with the Haley's and the Tim Scott's and the Vivek Ramaswamy's and the Elon Musk who, mark my words, mark my words, the day is going to come when Elon Musk becomes a candidate for public office. Hey, listen, that's prescient. That's prophetic. And when I say things like that, I write them down in my diary and I put a little post-it so that I go back and check. I hope I'm still alive when it happens, but I have seen in visions that Elon Musk will be running for office before, well, before the end of the uh, country as we know it. Let me take a quick break. I want to remind you that you should download our app, the 850 WFTL app, or you should visit our website, 850WFTL.com where you can read the news and hear the podcasts and participate in all these cool contests, win great prizes. You can't do it if you don't visit the website or you don't have the app. So, you know, what are you doing right now during this break? Uh, listen to my, when, you know, what I'm talking about on the break and download the app. How about that? You can do it. I know you can do it. Even, even those of you who have trouble with apps, you can do it. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, I'll tell you, you know, my friend uh, Stephen Diener really jumped on that whole alien subject, and now he's like, uh, you know, big superstar when it comes to these discussions, which are really fascinating because they're happening even in D.C. There's all these uh, hearings that are taking place that really blow my mind about what pilots have seen and what reports have come, and you can't, can't believe how they've deceived us for so long and said they don't know what we're talking about. They do that all the time. That's why we, of course, love Donald Trump, right? Because he tends to blow their cover and tell us what's really going on. And that is amazing, it really is. And that's why I'm such a big supporter. And I know, I know, I know people wish I would stop, but I can't. I just love the fact that he upsets the left so much. Anything that upsets the left really just makes me giggle. And boy, do they get upset about things. The Sound of Freedom, this movie, I don't know how many of you saw it, but I I would assume that most of the people in my listening audience made an effort to go see this movie. Now, we see that it became a pretty big hit. Look, it's not the Barbie movie and it's not Oppenheimer, but it wasn't supposed to be much of anything. No mention, however, and this is what really concerned me. There was no real mention of the borders and the fact that Mexico permits kids to be moved into my country, handed off to cartel agents, and then they totally disappear, sold in the child sex slave markets or sold to private individuals who use them and then do whatever they want to them. And our president, the current president, he doesn't seem to care at all. And I know that the uh, Biden crime family may very well be involved in some of it. Now, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just a supposition. And the reason I suppose that is because the more I hear about what they actually did and had their hands in, the more grossed out I am by the Biden family. I mean, it's bad enough when you have to think about some brother dying and then his crack-addled brother actually begins to have a relationship with the widow and even some sketchy stuff with the daughter, which would be his niece. And then you hear the stories about what was in that diary. And you know that one of the things that Joe Biden's daughter wrote about was the uncomfortability of showering with her dad. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I don't find anything unacceptable about the human body, the body without clothing, especially young bodies without clothing. Lovely to look at, delightful to know. But there comes a time and you draw a line. You know, I used to take showers with my daughter, but even with the child of the same gender as me, there came a time when I said, you will take a shower by yourself. There is no reason to be in the shower with anybody else. Now, whatever you do when you grow up and get married and have your husband, that's different. But you need to have privacy in the shower. Your body is a temple. It's precious. You've got to maintain cleanliness and you shouldn't be parading it. When my kids were very little, they would take baths together. I would say that stopped when my daughter hit about eight and she said to me, I'm really not comfortable taking a, a bath with Derek anymore. And I said, well, that's good. You know, so we can put an end to that. Derek was a little four or something at the time, and he didn't, you know, he didn't understand that, but he then became very zealous in guarding himself. So when I hear about teenage girls showering with adult males, it's weird. I don't think anybody doesn't think that's weird, except the Biden family. They don't think it's weird that Hunter Biden has photographs of himself smoking crack in a hotel room with prostitutes. They, apparently that doesn't disturb his father at all. Calls him a good guy great man. Just, it's a different kind of family than any I've ever known. You may not have liked the Obamas, but you couldn't find that kind of gross stuff going on with the Obama girls or the Obama or, or, or Michelle. If it went on, nobody knew about it. Bill Clinton was a whoremonger, but not with his own family. And believe me, in Arkansas, that's not that unheard of. Anyway, I have a special guest coming on, Gabriel Nadalis. We're going to be talking about the uh, Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Stanford, who finally was basically forced out, but has left. I'm going to talk about how that went down and how people ought to be pressuring all their alma maters, you know, all my colleges and grad schools. They get letters from me all the time. Hey, hey, what's your DEI policy? Get rid of it. It's our job to make sure this nonsense stops. All right, let me take a quick break. We'll be back. All righty then, and welcome back. A story that we followed pretty intensely in talk radio, and I certainly talked about it quite a bit, was the Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, of course, at Stanford, where my daughter attended medical school and uh, a university that I have zero respect for, um, because of things I saw going on even then, and that was 15 years ago, but now it's off the chain, and I've invited Gabriel Nadalis, who is the uh, national director for Our America, a group that's trying, and boy, is this a tough charge, they're trying <coughs> to speak out against anti-American groups, and uh, they, they were right on it when the students at Stanford were actually heckling a federal judge who was being featured by the Federalist Society. And apparently this dean, Gabriel, is it true? I mean, was she egging on the students? You know, it was incredibly surprising mm -hmm. because she started her speech 
saying that we should respect or the students should respect the right to protest, and that's fine. And she said something along the lines of, of this person or this judge has the right to speak, but then went on to call him hateful and, and divisive and how he endangered the communities of Stanford and went on this tirade that was basically sending this, the opposite message to her students. And she deplatformed the judge in the literal sense. She took over way too much time, and the judge wasn't able to get deliver his remarks. He just had to leave, and he had to be escorted by by uh, security and, and and police officers because there was a danger that maybe it might have gotten too too uh, rowdy, and he could have been hurt by some of the students. This is happening all over America at college campuses, though. It's not just the the judge at the Federalist Society at Stanford. Everywhere I turn, they're throwing people off the stages, whether it's Ben Shapiro. uh, Back in the day, it was Ann Coulter. And now it could be a Supreme Court justice. They just are hell-bent on silencing conservatives. Uh, I think you're 100% right. I mean, it's happened to me as well. Uh, I've spoken at several different campuses, uh, over 100 campuses, actually, talking about Antifa and how Antifa is not a good uh, movement, not a good group. And every time that I go out there, I will always, I very often face opposition, which, you know, opposition is good, but not when you're at Dartmouth University and they're threatening to, like, hurt the, the attendees, where you have multiple different uh, police departments, the sheriffs, as well as uh, the SWAT team, ready to protect me and, and my co-speaker. This happened earlier uh, last year of uh, 2022, and because they're afraid that they're gonna, there's going to be some sort of, like, bomb threat or something. I mean, they had a bomb uh, sniffing dogs. It was, it was really scary. Uh, and this happened to me more than once um, at, uh, I forget which school in, in Michigan, there was a, a student who was posting flyers about uh, Antifa stabbing a conservative uh, speaker or a conservative person uh, or assaulting him, not stabbing him, you know. It, it can be a little bit in their nerve-wracking, but at the same time, we have to remember that a lot of these things are very radical and they're a very minority viewpoint. When you look at, uh, when you do the polls, the vast majority of Americans love America. They love the First Amendment. In fact, there was a recent study by the Knight Foundation. I, I, I think it was in 91%, 92%. It was above 90% of Americans believe that the First Amendment needs to be protected. They, they want to defend the First Amendment. Yet you have this, um, unfortunately, a lot of people in minority positions, minority ideological viewpoints, getting these very important seats like at Stanford University, and they pretend that Free speech doesn't matter. They are all too willing to shut down dissent because it does not comport with their view of life. What really disturbs me, you know, I'm a lot older than you, but I went to college and grad school during the early 70s, and we were fighting for free speech, and we were debating every issue that you could think of. We were the generation that fought for safe and rare abortion. We were the generation that... You know, we had a lot of differences of opinion between conservatives and liberals, and yet I don't remember a single time when a speaker had to be escorted by the police off of our campus. And you could be looking at a a speech between Noam Chomsky and, you know, Ronald Reagan, and it would still be peaceful. When did we become so intolerant of other viewpoints? You know, I actually have a very, very pointed answer on that. Um, I would say 2004, 2005. Mm. And here's the interesting thing. 
Um, because when you look at Antifa and some of those uh, groups that unfortunately in 2016 they were really going on college campuses or shutting down, a lot of the platform movement started sometime in the mid-2010s. Um, well, Antifa is an old organization from the 1930s. It died down sometime in the, in the 50s, and then it restarted sometime in the 80s. In the 90s, there was a huge revival of it. But I know this person who was also an Antifa activist, which I wrote a book about my, my, my involvement with Antifa some time ago. But um, in 2005, he told me a couple of years ago, but he told me in 2005, some of their activism was actually going into college campuses to go um, – um, David Horowitz was actually, he told me he, he went to protest the David Horowitz speech in 2005 and they were heckling him. And, mm-hmm. and that, that was a tactic. In, 2000, in the mid-2000s, it was actually a tactic from going to, into college campuses and starting to shut down libertarian voices, conservative voices, or just voices which were uh, opposing the radical uh, view of some, so, some of these people. Hmm. Yeah. No, listen, I, I remember going out to California to um, stand alongside of Ann Coulter. It must have been seven or eight years ago where she was supposed to be speaking and Antifa had this whole big event and it was the first time I had ever been exposed to Antifa and I'm looking at these like, you know, pathetic looking younger people wearing these black masks and uh, just, they looked so uninformed and uneducated and and the following year i believe i was in washington dc and there was a group of these antifa protesters at an immigration rally where we were protesting open borders and i'm looking and i I finally had the nerve to walk up and say like you know what are you doing here what do you think is going on he says well i got five bucks in lunch (laughs) this is what they they can't even come up with these warriors they got to pay them yeah, and you know, we do have to go back to the Stanford story, though. We do really have to praise the interim president. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure I remember his name of Stanford Law School or Stanford because he is a true proponent of freedom of speech. I I just found out uh, about this before the interview, but apparently when he was running the the Confucius Center, which has its own problems, right. there was a four million dollar gift. Uh, that was going to be giving to the Confucian Center, on, but it was conditioned on the idea that the Confucian Center or like Stanford in general should not and could not talk about Tibet, like the, the, what happened mm. in Tibet. Mm. And he said, nope, we're not going to do that. He's a true proponent of academic freedom, and mm. he was very uh, adamant about making sure that this uh, this uh, dean, this this woman who heckled that bus, uh, that, that that federal judge. Um, that she left the university because when you were talking about higher education, mm-hmm. you have to be able to peacefully and and, and civilly uh, oppose people's beliefs. You can't shut them down because the, the, the basic idea of higher education is the pursuit of truth. And if you have violence or threats of violence on college campuses, you can't search for truth. No. And they're just cowards because, you know, I look at some of the organizations like yours that are trying to engage in free speech and trying to get their viewpoint uh, out there. They'll invite 
liberals to come debate with them, and they always say no. They don't go to uh, you know TPUSA. They don't go to CPAC. They're not interested in debating. They're only interested in indoctrinating. And unfortunately, now they've started in elementary schools with this nonsense, with this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. But this Tyrion Steinbeck, the dean, you know, what happens to her now? Does she just like move on to Princeton or Dartmouth? I mean, I'm sure she's not leaving higher education. Uh, and that's the danger, because while it's a good thing for Stanford, the position of DEI dean, or whatever her specific role, but it, she was in charge of diversity, equity, and inclusion, that role itself should be eliminated, because DEI does not promote community. It promotes divisiveness. It's interesting, because they're talking about how uh, they always tell people that DEI and, and some of these uh, critical race theory, critical gender theory, is all about bringing people together and showing how we have more in common. But some of the most fundamental writings in critical race theory, such as uh, inter- or ideas such as intersectionality, actually emphasize the differences of people and how people are divided into different groups as opposed to bringing them together. I mean, intersection literally means to divide people into different intersections, and it promotes more divisiveness than than community. And so, while I applaud the fact that uh, this dean is no longer at Stanford, one she's likely going to go on to another job, maybe another right. prestigious university, because having Stanford on your resume looks pretty good, even if you didn't leave in the best of terms. Yeah. But second of all, you have to get rid of some of these DEI um, uh, programs because they do not foster community. They foster divisiveness, and they are antithetical anti, uh, to uh, free speech and free expression. Look, I say this all the time. When I entered talk radio in 1991, uh, the, I was told immediately, you know, forget it. There's no market for a woman talking about politics on the radio. Nobody's going to listen to you. And I did not go running for the first uh, civil rights attorney that I could find. I said, well, you know, maybe if I'm good enough, uh, it will actually work. And subsequent to that, there have been plenty of successful female talk show hosts who have gone on to television roles and all other kinds of things. Some like me who spent 33 years on the air, never been out of work a day. And, uh, you know, you just don't need a... An, a department of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you need to get out into the battlefield and you need to fight the good fight. And if we don't you know, teach that to kids in higher education, then there's not much of a future for, for this country at all. I, I, I just don't believe that we have served ourselves well by making sure that we have a female black vice president, which was exactly what I was told Joe Biden had to pick in order for America to look like America. And now I ended up with a woman who can't co- put two sentences coherently together. How does that help America? You know, this nonsense. You're <laughs> right. They, they need to get rid of diversity, equity, and inclusion departments and uh, deans and all that nonsense. And probably in the corporate world as well and in government when you get right down to it. You, you can't even find pilots for the military because, they, you know, there's too many white men in the cockpit and they have to do something about that. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will, Gabriel. <laughs> But- now you're speaking, you're preaching to the choir, and you know it's one of those ideas that it's it's good that the the Supreme Court just struck down affirmative action as a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment, but at the same time, it's not like all of a sudden things are going to be fixed. Right. There's still a cultural issue. 
And we have to make sure that we fulfill Dr. King's dream, which is the idea that people should be based or judged not on the content of their skin color, but on the content of their character. That's really what it comes down to. We need to be talking about ideas, about about our actions, not about skin tone, not about gender, uh, like because th- those are the way I like to see them. Uh, the fact that Kamala Harris is happens to be Indian, part black, and and whatever else she is, because I know she's a couple of things. Those are fun facts, and mm-hmm. they can be kind of inspirational, sure. But at the same, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. That's a fun fact. What I'm more interested in is what she or he and for future presidents, future vice presidents, uh, what they are going to do. Are they mm-hmm. going to help Americans or are they just going to brag about their skin color, about being the first black, or the first Hispanic, the first whatever? Right. I want to see action. I don't want to see just the up first. Yeah. Well, check out the website, joinouramerica.org. That is your website, isn't it? That's correct. Joinouramerica.org. That's joinouramerica.org. Yes, and uh, they're trying to unite communities. Thanks so much for coming on, Gabriel. I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, we'll be out talking because this isn't going to stop. It isn't going away anytime soon. All right, i got to take a break, and then we'll come back and finish this last segment. After that, Eric Erickson comes your way and all the other good stuff that we love to serve up to you here at 850 WFTL. Stay right where you are. I'll be right back. So there's just no way I'm going to be able to get to all the news that I wanted to talk about, Um, in particular this list of items that we have now sent to the Ukraine, uh, another $47 billion worth of equipment. I guess part of that is in response to the fact that the American public became aware that we have depleted our own reserves and supplies and I wanted to you know at least go over some of the stuff that's on this list with you but I'm not going to have time to do that and I'm not going to have time to talk about this new agreement between the Department of Homeland Security and the government of Mexico to further ongoing work to modernize and advance infrastructure projects that support our border communities and benefits both nations and strengthens our bilateral relationship and security. How about securing the border? But never mind, because the story that uh, has been claiming a lot of headlines and was first broken this morning by TMZ Sports was that LeBron James's son, Bronny, was rushed to the hospital after suffering cardiac arrest during a basketball workout uh, yesterday. Yesterday, while practicing, Bronny James suffered a cardiac arrest. Medical staff was able to treat Bronny and take him to the hospital where he is now in stable condition, is no longer in ICU. We ask for respect and privacy for the James family, and we will update media when there is more information. Uh, And, of course, you know, the parents thank the fact that the staff, the medical staff at the USC, the school that he goes to, uh, intervened as quickly as they did. But the 18-year-old Bronny was taken to the hospital as a code three, which means that the ambulance had lights and sirens going. That's a serious emergency. He's uh, just committed to the Trojans, and he's expected, of course, to end up in the NBA. People are talking about how his father may not retire until there's that great moment when father and son could be playing alongside one another in the league. And uh, this is a kid who's already competed in the slam dunk competition at his high school showcase back in March. 
something that his father did before him. And uh, the, the son of Shaquille O'Neal, Sharif O'Neal, also had to deal with a heart issue of his own back in 2018 when he was a teenage basketball star. And you'll recall he had to have surgery to fix an abnormality in his ticker. So we don't know if these guys have the same kind of issue because they're friends, Sharif and Bronny. And they were just spotted, uh, I saw it on TMZ, they were at uh, Saudi's birthday bash, I probably didn't say that right, Saudi's birthday bash. And uh, look, what's the question on everybody's mind? Did Bronny have a jab? Because of course, his father was instrumental in encouraging young people to get the COVID vaccine. And he himself had the COVID vaccine and he had plenty to say about the handful of NBA players who said, I'm not getting the COVID vaccine. So now the first question on everybody's mind, it's not a conspiracy theory, but when young men suffer heart attacks, young men who are in remarkably good shape, athletes, you know, are felled with heart attacks, the first thing we want to know is that myocarditis could have anything to do with the vaccination. And of course, we're immediately silenced. Don't ask that question. It's none of your business. Don't ask the family anything. I just, they don't realize that that just makes the rumors even more, uh, they just take life. Anyway, I thank you for your time this time until next time. My plan is to be back here tomorrow at three o'clock, if it be his will, and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And may God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. We pray for a full recovery for Bronnie James. See you all tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.